Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Nice. Like that? I love that. It's from a song by Tom Lehrer called Werner von Braun. Makes sense. It's another one we missed off our playlist, which I've got to add. I also completely forgot about Judas Priest's Electric Eye. What were you thinking? (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking, because that song, go listen to the lyrics of that song, written in the 70s from their seminal album Screaming for Vengeance. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Matt, when I listen to it, will I have to wear a leather biker outfit? A a, a leather peaked cap with studs. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Which is is pretty much your normal normal outfit. Yeah, it's about spy satellites. It's very good. Tearless retina. Matt, we've got a few thank yous this week, haven't we? We do. Actually, we've had some great reviews that have been coming in on our iTunes. It's not our mums. No, it's It's not our mums. It's people that we've never met. Absolutely. Which blows my mind a bit. So please keep that coming in. If you do one, uh, let us know as well. So go to our website and let us know that you've done it, because I would love to send the Wuzzy uh, an interplanetary podcast mug. Because check this review out, Jamie. I like it. Go on, then. I'm obsessed with space, but... One of the elements I never thought I would get be into was the tech and engineering side. The show has absolutely turned that around. I hoover up every episode. I never thought I could be so excited about satellites, but here we are. And thanks to these guys, if ever I get a pub quiz with Elon Musk trivia, I'm going to crush it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, thanks, Wazzy. Yeah, and he also mentions that we've got the coolest intro music. Yes. Oh, no. You see, what you've done there, Wazzy, is you're going to inflate Matt's head even more. Because he wrote it. Anyway, moving swiftly Swiftly on, Jamie. Uh, Because we've got a lot to get through. Just like last week, this is a bumper episode of the, the podcast. Well... Coming up, we've got an ace little chat that we had with Harriet Brettel, who's uh, over who's over studying at Caltech, mm. and we've also got a brilliant interview. And actually, I've I so enjoyed editing this down, Jamie, because I'd forgotten just how many cool things he said with Hervé Stevenen, ah, yes. who is the head of NBF operations and EVA training at uh, ESA. That was an amazing. That was really fascinating, wasn't it? Yeah, so check that out in a minute. So uh, we're just going to quickly whip through the space news. Let's whip through it. My favourite bit of space news of the week is my friends at Goonhilly Earth Station oh, yeah. have have just been awarded a huge sum of money to do up one of their dishes, which is the dish number six, which some people refer to as Merlin. Oh. Uh, yeah, basically ESA have stumped up uh, a whole heap of money uh, via the uh, local investment fund <laughs> to uh, so that it will become part of the deep space network uh, and will do things like support EM1 uh, when SLS finally flies up a crewed vehicle right. and also, you know, uh, be part of uh, communicating with satellites over at Mars and at the moon and things like that. So it's going to be a hugely important part of uh, international space. Damn. And just so you know, that that dish was actually used to transmit the Live Aid concerts, of course. Uh, and uh, that, that site, Goon Hilly, 
uh, was uh, played a key role in things like Muhammad Ali's fight and the Olympic Games and the Apollo 11 moon landings. Goon Hill is going to be part of an enormous uh, UK effort to cash in on the £40 billion a year space trade that's going to be space economy by 2030. So that's going to be uh-huh. pretty exciting stuff. Um, Republic of Croatia, Jamie, they've joined, uh, they've signed a cooperation agreement with ESA. So that's, that's good work, Croatia. Shall we go straight to our little chat with Harriet? Because I think yeah, this is, really, this is su- such good fun. So, Ecoute. Hey, Matt, do you know what's exciting? What is exciting, Jamie? Well, you know the California Institute of Technology? I'm aware of the institution. Well, we've only got live Harriet Brettel, PhD student from Los Angeles on the line. <laughs> Hi, guys. How are you doing? <laughs> Harriet, how's it going? I'm very well, thanks. How are things back home? We're all good. We're, we're, as we just said, we're a little bit jealous of your weather over there compared to our what seems to be like constant drizzle at the moment, doesn't it, Matt? Constant drizzle and fluid. And it's given Matt a cold. I mean, listen yeah. to Matt. He's got, you know, he's got his Kleenex. It's not good. Not good. <laughs> but Harriet, what's uh, what's been going on? What's since you've been in LA? Can you give us a brief update of what you've been up to? Yeah, sure. So last time I chatted with you guys on the podcast was almost a year ago now, maybe. Um, I reckon it's more than that. That's crazy. Time flies when you're having fun, eh? It does. Um, but now I've, I've I've just started a PhD in planetary sciences at Caltech. That has been keeping me busy. Nice. Learning about all things space, which has been awesome. Primarily researching Europa and Jupiter. Amazing. Been really cool. What can you tell us about those? So the thing that I learned when I got here is like the solar system is way more interesting than I I gave it credit for previously. I mean, I know I'm on a space show, right? So that kind of like goes without saying. <laughs> and you gave it some credit, so that's saying something. <laughs> um, but. It's just incredible. So one of the projects I'm working on is looking at the South Pole of Jupiter. Um, So the Juno mission, which is currently in orbit around Jupiter, has brought back these absolutely incredible images of Mm. the North and South Pole. Um, One of the things we've found at the South Pole is this incredibly regular pattern of cyclones. Um, So there's one cyclone or giant storm at the South Pole. And then there's five cyclones around it in like a perfect pentagon shape. Whoa. I mean, it looks like an artist picture, you know, it's just so structured and beautiful. So I'm trying to figure out how that system is stable and why it is the way it is. That's insane. We need to get that picture up on the blog. No, absolutely. Is it is it got something to do with acoustics? Because there's there's people who are uh, who are obsessed with this. Uh, is it cinematics and the and the and the kind of those hexagon shapes that you can make from uh, acoustic standing waves? Oh, I don't know about that actually. I'll I'll, I'll send you that because yeah, it was one yeah, of the explanations for the for the Saturn hexagon was mm-hmm. acoustic standing waves that you can force to make into those hexagon shapes. It's very interesting. Oh, that is fascinating because, yeah, you're right, because Saturn has this ring. It's like a hexagon-shaped ring around the around the North Pole, right? Um, yeah. And on Jupiter, we see kind of like a similar, kind of similar structure, but it's made out of these giant storms arranged in the patterns. Um, so, yeah, any acoustics uh, info <laughs> you can send my way, that'd be awesome. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know where I saw it. I'll have to, I'm going to definitely try and dig it out, though. For sure. Yeah. Isn't one of your professors quite famous? I guess so. Um, <laughs> one of the professors I'm working with is uh, Mike Brown. He is 
Pluto killer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess he he takes uh, pride in the the fact that he was responsible for discovering a number of uh, Kuiper belt objects um, over the last few years, which kind of put the nail in the coffin in terms of classifying Pluto as a as a legit planet and downgrading it to a dwarf planet. Is everyone in that uh, department getting excited about new horizons at the end of the year for MU69? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the really exciting things about being here is just you really feel like you're at the heart of so many scientific uh, discoveries, you know. Mm. Um, I got here in September and the first thing that happened was we celebrated the finale of the Cassini mission, um, yes. which was a uh, huge, huge deal. Um, and then there was the 40th celebration of the Voyager mission, 40th year anniversary of that. Um, uh, and, oh, <laughs> my goodness, it was, yeah, it's just been incredible. You know, like you, you can't really go anywhere without uh, – learning about some new space project that's going on which is incredibly exciting yeah harriet what was the vibe with i mean we obviously know how excited we all were over here as i'm sure over there it was the same but what was the general vibe uh in uh in la and where you were with the people that you were with about falcon heavy oh oh my goodness was it like <laughs> I'm still reeling from that whole experience. It was just That's incredible. Right. Yeah, amazing. Just like complete awe, I think, you know. Mm. Um, it was just just amazing. Like, I, I guess we kind of had similar experiences, right? Because we were just watching it on TV screens on YouTube. Right. Oh, when you see it go up and then when those boosters landed. Insane. It just looked unreal. And what's your th- opinion about where this could take us in terms of interplanetary uh, exploration? I think it's incredibly exciting. I mean, there's so many different angles of this, like of what SpaceX is doing that I think is is really exciting. The one, mm. the one for me is just bringing the cost down, making this, making this technology reusable, making it something that can be done again and again, because... You, you lower the barriers to entry in the kind of space exploration, space travel. Um, mm. there, there's really no end to what you can do, you know. Um, and, and that goes for kind of space tourism, but also kind of scientific research, you know. At the moment, it costs like billions and billions of dollars to get a probe to Jupiter. Well, but what if we could we could use this kind of technology or use Falcon Heavy to launch space probes into the outer solar system for for much much cheaper and much more efficiently? Like that's yeah. very exciting as well. So I've got, I've got a feeling that Europa Clipper might go on a Falcon Heavy rather than SLS. That's what that's my feeling. Yeah. What do you reckon? I, I don't think the SLS will be built by the time Europa Clipper. So, we've gone right off topic. So, so Harriet, we, yeah, we you, you've got uh, an exciting topic for us this week, which was we thought was was going to be good fun. So, uh, hit it, hit us with it. Yeah, sure. So, uh, this is like one of my my pet interests that I've always loved with regards to kind of space exploration, and that is how science fiction has predicted the future in terms of some of the uh, some of the stories that we've been hearing about. You know, kind of things that are seem incredible, um, but sci-fi writers have been talking about these things for decades and decades. You know. Mm. Um, 
One great example, I guess, to start off is um, Jules Verne wrote a novel in 1865 called From the Earth to the Moon. And it tells the tale of the first astronauts heading to the moon, right? And he gets some of the details of this mission incredibly pretty accurate, you know. Um, really? He predicts that it will be three astronauts going up. Mm-hmm. He predicts that the launch site will be Florida. He predicts that it will be the Americans that launch the first rockets to the moon. He gets the weight of the rocket and the cost of the mission what? pretty much bang on. He says that the rocket would have to cost have to weigh 19,000 pounds and it weighed 26,000 pounds. Mm. So, I mean, we're not like exactly right, but in terms of ballpark, I think that's yeah, pretty Yeah, but great. in 1865, that's not a bad prediction. Absolutely. And the thing that's I think is most incredible about this is he wrote this story before there were planes flying in the sky, you know, and he's mm. writing a story about humans going to the moon. It's just like that kind of foresight is remarkable. Oh man, that's that 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 that's actually worth repeating, isn't it? He wrote those stories before there was planes mm-hmm. in the sky. That's just yeah. ridiculous. Oh, man. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and there's lots of other examples of, like, fun sci-fi stories that have predicted crazy things. Um, what else you got? Well, I've got so many to throw at you. Uh, this this is, like, the creepiest one, okay? Um Obviously, there's different types of sci-fi predictions, you know, like Jules Verne spent a lot of time in his book trying to make the story as realistic as possible, you know. Mm-hmm. But sometimes science fiction writers just throw an idea out there and it just becomes true in a or a, it is just eerily kind of predictive of the future, right? Um, mm. So the next one I've got for you is kind of more in the second bracket, but it's it's just remarkable. So you've heard of Dr. Werner von Braun, right? He was one of the NASA pioneers involved in the in the space race, uh, yes. rocketry engineer. Um, don't don't mention his Nazi past, but yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll cloud over that. Controversial, but um, yeah. but one of his passions was um, human missions to Mars. He he did a lot of work trying to figure out the actual scientific and engineering implications of that kind of mission. Um, but he also, he also wrote a science fiction story, um, which was kind of around the first uh, the first human trip to to Mars, right? Um, and so he wrote this story in 1949. The, st- the, the book itself is based in 1980. Um, there's, some, there's some funny little anecdotes in there, like uh, the United States of Earth have finally found peace by 1980 because um, this was written, you know, pre-Cold War. Um, an artificial moon called Lunetta orbits the Earth, kind okay. of like the International Space Station does now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the um, humans on the Earth discover that there is a civilized um, society living on Mars. Okay, so the, the story tells a tale of the first human trip to go and see it. They meet the Martian government. I'll, I'll, I'll quote a little bit from the book so I get it word to word. But this is go. Von Braun talking about what he thinks the Martian government will be will look like. And remember, he wrote this in 1949. Okay. Uh-huh. The Martian government was directed by 10 men, the leader of whom was elected by universal suffrage for five years and entitled Elon. (laughs) 
come on. He actually predicted that the leader of the Martian government would be called Elon. Like, you, you literally couldn't make this stuff up. It's incredible. <laughs> and the thing is, it's not as if that's a popular name. Yeah. You know right. what I mean? He could have said he could have said John or or Hans or you know because he was I just the way it's written it's almost Elon stand is an acronym for something yeah is it an acronym or is it or is it just no. it just happens to be called Elon I think it's I think it's just a wonderful coincidence I looked up the meaning of the the name Elon because I wasn't sure if it like I don't know it meant leader or something you know. Mm. Um, mm. But it means like oak tree. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Although Harriet, you know that recently on Twitter, Elon Musk told us what his actual full name was. Oh and yeah, what's that? Elongated musk rat. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what happened is he'd seen a he'd seen a meme um, that had said that, and then he just decided to post it himself. I'd I'd love to believe it. Oh man, I've not heard that. That's brilliant. Yeah. Elongated muskrat, yeah, I've heard it here. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe what? Von Braun didn't get it quite as right as he thought he did then. There we go, he wasn't that right. That's insane, I can't believe that. I oh, mean, no. that's scary. He shares a birthday with George. Oh, really? Aww. Yeah, 23rd of March. Well, you can do a toast to Von Braun and Elon on that day, huh? And Absolutely. George, of course. I always <laughs> do, always do. Let's toast to his predictions and his uh, rocketry. Absolutely. Not not his Nazi past. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys, we can't not speak about that. He was a terrible man for a long time. My dad used to hear his rockets going over Kent on their way to London. Yeah, <gasps> yeah that's, that's mad. mad. Wow. Aims for the skies, hits London. Mm. <laughs> that was the joke. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to the first category. Is anyone that's 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 been really nailing it on a on a predictive way? Yeah. Um. I guess the other thing that science fiction has done a really good job of predicting um, well is technology, right? Mm. Um, so Arthur C. Clarke is, well, science fiction hero, right? Um, one of the stories he wrote, obviously, was 2001, A Space Odyssey. And, and in that story, he has characters using newspads, which are just thin computers with touch screens where people can get information from anywhere in the world, right? Mm. Exactly the same way as you'd use an iPad today, except for he wrote this in the mm. 1960s. You see cell phones in Star Trek way before their time. There's other books, which other science fiction books that kind of predict things like the internet, uh, like the machine stops, for example. Um, and I found a fantastic story, which is by a guy called Hugo Gernsback, which was written in 1911. So again, this is before we had televisions internet all that kind of thing um but he created this device in his story where people could um talk to each other from across the world with a kind of like a, a mirror device where the picture of the other person would appear on the screen and you could talk to them as if they were there in the room that's nuts well yeah do you think that steve jobs just sort of went was a big sci-fi guy and thought yeah we can do that we can make ipads sure yeah i think so i mean this is one of the things i think is interesting if you ask the question can science fiction predict the future i think for me sci-fi isn't about predicting the future it's about inspiring us to yes. do what we want and make the future that we want to to see you know exactly. and so you're exactly right i mean um there's so many leading scientists of the past who have been inspired by different sci-fi 
stories, you know. Um, I mean, you saw Elon Musk's homage to Douglas Adams, right, on the Falcon Heavy launch um, mm. just last week. So, so I think that's where the real value is that you get from science fiction is that it inspires people to go and do these incredible things that they see in stories. Harriet, you know I was slightly upset that we didn't include Blade Runner in this chat. Uh, we can still right. include Blade Runner in this chat. <laughs> What's going to happen is I'm going to design a robot that's going to help Matt with his cough. The, the weird thing about that is that the Star Trek one, you know, the um, tricorder. Oh, yeah. That is a, that's, that's like a, a Google X prize, is it really? isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Someone's just about to win it if, if, if they haven't already. Mm. So someone has built a tricorder. So that's that's another piece of technology that's predicted. Oh my god, that's really cool. That sounds like the most the world's worst instrument. <laughs> Imagine that. Actually, one that I saw on the television the other yeah. day, and I, and I this is this one's actually quite remarkable. Is the laser? Lasers were were a sort of trope of early sci-fi, uh-huh. uh, where where aliens would come to Earth and shoot you with their light beams. Yeah. Eventually, the laser gets made, and of course, you really can have a a laser gun. Mm-hmm. That's pretty incredible. That is cool. because let's face it, lasers are possibly one of the greatest inventions. Ever. Matt, how far are we away yeah. from the the actual lightsaber? That that's a that's definitely a question for Harriet. Oh, how- I would say that. <laughs> I I think we've got a little way to go. The problem with light is you can't just stop it. I was just going to say you can't just make it that length, can you? No, you can't. Yeah. You you can slow it down though. Have you seen that video of light passing through a Coke bottle? No. No. This is one of my favourite videos of all time. There is a, a camera that's fast enough mm-hmm. to show light as it moves through a Coke bottle. And if you've never seen it, it's absolutely incredible. Okay, I'm going to be YouTubing so it, this it, when, as soon as this conversation is over. Matt, is it sl- does it slow down because it has to get through like 10 tonnes of sugar? <laughs> is that exactly. what happens it just it, it eat, the light eats the sugar and gets a bit lethargic and think oh i'll, I'll come out yeah just give me a minute and he goes oh just give me a minute but yeah it's 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 going slow enough for it to go through for you to be able to see the progress of the light as it goes through the coke bowl wow. it's absolutely ridiculous incredible. it's one of the most incredible wow. videos it is one of the most incredible videos ever made it's incredible wow that is a bold claim, so, Matthew. No, it really is. And I think any listener that's seen it will be agreeing with me, but nodding their head you right reckon? now. And anyone that hasn't seen it will be rushing off to see it. It's a great one. Yeah, you've really hyped right, this look, one up, you know, so we're going to watch it yeah. now and be a little bit disappointed. Yeah. I, I'm telling you, you're not, because I, it, it genuinely is. that It's that good. Although, Harry, I've known Matt longer than you, and he says this about some albums and some films that then I get really excited about. And mm. just, they just don't live up to it. They're a little bit questionable, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, Matt, we'll be the judge of this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's fair enough. I don't, I don't feel as though you're, you're bullying nah, me at all. Nah, not at all. So, Harriet, what's coming up in the next sort of six to eight months for you? Lots more research, lots uh-huh. more studying. I have classes for like the next year, um, so I'm going to be learning some cool stuff. I'm heading to Hawaii for a week what? of telescope observations. Okay, now I'm jealous. Now, isn't the isn't the telescope on Hawaii, is that the uh, most powerful telescope at the moment on Earth? Um, there's a number of different telescopes um, on Mauna Kea, which is the, the mountain in Hawaii. Um, uh-huh. 
I'm not sure exactly which one is the the biggest and the best. Um, they all do slightly different things. Mm. Uh, look at different wavelengths of light, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, they're pretty powerful. It's uh, I'm excited. That's amazing. Are you going to get any surfing in at the same time? Uh, yeah, hopefully. Some surfing, some cycling, that kind of thing. Yeah, hopefully. Matt, let's not talk about my surfing story. Oh, you, now you've mentioned it. <laughs> no, you've it's a harrowing <laughs> tale, but every time I think of it, it, make, it makes me laugh out loud on public transport. <laughs> Matt, why can't we go to Hawaii and look through telescopes? Uh, Harriet's going to invite us over to, in, to interview some people on Hawaii. Yeah. It's going to be brilliant. Yeah, you guys should come visit. We need a few more donations. <laughs> Is is Kip Thorne still at Caltech? Um, he is. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Honestly, it's incredible. Like that was another thing that happened a few months in here. Obviously, they were awarded the uh, the Nobel Prize for Physics for the discovery of gravitational waves. Um, wow! And I was I was wandering along the the corridors of the astronomy department a few weeks ago um, and accidentally walked past uh, Kip Thorne's office. And outside of his office, he has got all of these um, framed bets that he has made with different scientists, um, a number of which are related to, like, the discovery of gravitational waves. And there's a couple with Stephen Hawking in there as well. You know, he's made a bet with Stephen Hawking and they've got, like, the ring now, like... Um, what the what the conditions are of the bet and the timeline and everything. So it, it's it's very funny. We should do a couple of them between us lot. You know, what do what are our predictions? What do we think is going to come true? Yeah, that would be a good one. Let's say like in ten years time. Let's do that. Let's say in ten years time. Oh. That's twenty twenty eight. And actually, listeners, let's all try this. Uh, send in your one prediction. It has to be just one. That in ten years time, twenty twenty eight. What do you think is going to have definitely happened that's gonna be a good one Ooh. i've got one for you now i'm gonna predict that we'll be back on the moon in the next 10 years within the next 10 years back, back on, on the moon, moon. that's when a good back one on the moon you mean oh. that actually people there working or um i think we will have humans will have walked on the moon again in the next 10 years but i'm gonna predict further that it won't be a government agency that will do it wow wow okay, okay. private Na- okay nationality South African. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like that. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a good one. Within t- within ten years, that that's ambitious, actually. I think, but uh, yeah, I like the moon. Oh, I think we I think we can do it. Uh, uh, it's wildly unambitious, but uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's true. <laughs> In a way, it's like well, we did that a long time ago. Right? Oh, I know. That, that, <laughs> true, that, true. That's what's making me a little bit. Oh, I just don't know. That's a, that's a good one though. What about within the within ten years? We will have found uh, evidence of organic life on an exoplanet. Whoa, that is a bolder claim, I think. Oh, it's bolder. But there's no point making claims unless they're bold. Steady on. Okay, here's mine, guys. Are you ready for mine? I'm going to say that we will have mined the first multi-billion dollar asteroid. Whoa. What do you think about those apples? You know, this is just going to become one of those. My claim is bigger than your claim. <laughs> <laughs> By the end of this, we'll be like, yeah, I reckon it's we're going to be teleporting outrageous. tomorrow. <laughs> These are good claims. They're three solid claims that are. Yeah, I think solid. they are. We'll also be able to pass and slow down light through, I'm going to say, a Pepsi bottle. Wow. Okay. Whoa. 
choice of a new generation, Matt. <laughs> yeah, about, about 30 years ago. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, oh, so, dear. Harry, have you got any other super sci-fi predictions that came true to leave us uh, with? Oh, I've got one more, which I quite like. Um, this is... Um, the interstellar asteroid that was discovered last year, right? Amuamua. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you hear about it? Did we? Did. <laughs> <laughs> we covered yeah. it. Come on. Of course you did. Of course you did. Excellent. So this was uh, this is the first asteroid that has been discovered that has come from outside of our solar system, passed through. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was discovered late last year. And one of the significant things about it was this kind of cigar-like shape. You know, it was, it's very cylindrical in a way that we weren't really expecting, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and it's unlike anything we've seen before, right? Um, that is unless you've read Arthur C. Clarke's novel Rendezvous with Rama, which was published wow. in 1973. Um, and this is wonderful. It tells the story of astronomers discovering a cylindrical interstellar asteroid, which actually turns out to be a giant alien-shaped spaceship. Come on. <laughs> what is great about that is we, we, we actually, on the 100th anniversary of Arthur C. Clarke's birthday, mm-hmm. which wasn't actually too far away from when all this fuss about the Hamuamua was happening. Yeah, that's true. We actually covered a quote which was from the start of that book, because funnily enough, I actually read that book a couple of years ago. And mm-hmm. he predicts that there will be a sort of network uh, that will allow every single uh, sort of near-Earth object, uh, particularly, you know, you know a, a planet killer, to be always mm-hmm. discovered. So there's a network, so nothing can come towards Earth without us knowing about it. And it's this network that picks up the... Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the picks up Rama. And it's so brilliant, the, the way that it's described, how it's picked up and, and how they don't know what it is f- at first. Exactly like this Hamuamua, because I watched that. Un- I watched the Hamuamua thing uh, unravel mm-hmm. on Twitter f- at first. That's the first I heard of it, oh, where yeah. people, people were talking about it on Twitter going, it, it seems we've confirmed that this is the first interstellar object that's uh, entered our solar system that we've noticed. And I was thinking, this is really, really exciting. And I'm actually a little bit surprised that they didn't call it Rama. It just seemed to be just yeah. too obvious. They missed a trick. They really did, didn't that they? That would have been nice. Yeah. Particularly considering oh, it was Arthur C. Clarke's 100th birthday at the time. It was really weird. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Well, we can call it Rama. How about that? I am going to I call it Rama. Although, yeah, Hamuamua, that's uh, because it was Hawaiian telescopes, I'm assuming. That, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that is a wonderful name, isn't it? Hamuamua. So great. I, I'm probably pronouncing it horrifically, but oh, we're, we're the we're the kings of pronouncing things horrifically. So don't worry. Am you're in I good right? Company. In, it's it it's something like traveller that arrives first, or something like that, isn't it? That's what it's that's what it means. The direct yeah. translation, correct? Yeah, yeah. Good Hawaiian skills there. Thanks. <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah. I tell you what, Harriet, you've inspired me to look into old sci-fi novels. See if I can pick up any more predictions. Oh yeah, you should. Um, yeah, there's some there's some real classics out there. 
I need to raid the BIS library, Matt. Do they have sci-fi in there? Yeah, there's a whole sec. There's a whole section of uh, sci-fi okay. in the BIS library. Well, I'm going to get down. So, Harriet, thank you very much for joining us on the show. If we if we have it any longer, this is going to go on for absolutely ever. Oh, <laughs> that's the problem with this topic is you could just go on and on talking about these different sci-fi stories, right? I, I I am now going to see if we can come up with some some even more. I'm going to offer that out to the uh, listeners as well, see if they can come up with some some ones. We'll see if we can create an, yeah, entire, an entire blog post filled with these things. That would be cool. awesome. Harriet, thanks so much. And, uh, you know, have fun in L.A. We're not jealous. It's yeah. been a pleasure talking with you guys. How, how, lo- how long is your PhD going to take you? Oh, it's an average of five years. Oh, so you've got to stay at Caltech so- for five years. I know, it's real tough, isn't it? Um, oh, nightmare. But, I don't know how you're going to cope. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's going to be a real struggle, but someone's got to do it, you know. Exactly. Science won't do itself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great stuff. Well, guys, as always, post in your questions. If there's anything that you want Harriet to, uh, to answer, we can always do that. So let us know. How fun was that? Jamie. she's the best she's our la woman now she's our la woman we i did enjoy her how her accent was slightly americanized and during yeah. the during the podcast <laughs> it became more and more <laughs> english again that was cool it was cool brilliant very funny we'll get her back uh yes absolutely i think we should just go straight on to our chat with herve stevenen i'm just going to quickly give you a little bit of a background uh he should be our aquanaut of the week because, uh-huh. uh, yeah, he has been an aquanaut on Nemo 19. Nice. But he is the European leading ESA natural buoyancy facility operation. So he's the head of that. Uh-huh. And uh, he's part of the EVA training unit at EAC, where we went in Cologne uh, in Germany. Okay. He applied, actually, to be a, a, an astronaut in the 2009 selection. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and got down to the last 45 it's not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. And he's also oh, played right. Neil Armstrong in a Comex design prototype training spacesuit. Whoa. In an underwater simulation of Apollo 11. Amazing. He's got a private pilot license. He's a skydiver. He's done 60 parachute jump jumps. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so let's, yeah, he's, I mean, what, what an incredible guy. So yeah, he's really um, was. So he, he's very much like the boss of things like the zero G um aircraft as well so uh, he takes the astronauts training on that and he's done 800 parabolas in microgravity on that zero g plane (laughs) so let's have a let's have a listen good day um we are here with herve stefanon thank you so much for joining us yeah you're welcome so can you please explain a, your job here and the facilities that are at the European Astronaut Center? Okay, the facility is called the Natural Buoyancy Facility. Uh, facility. It's actually a, a big water tank, 10 meters deep, in which we train the astronauts for what we call the rules of engagement of the spacewalk. So uh, the reason why we merge them it's because when you are underwater, uh, this is a, a feeling that all the divers uh, have already experienced. If your buoyancy is, is well uh, fine-tuned and well adapted, you can find yourself floating in the middle of the water like you would float in space. And this is actually the best uh, analogy or representation of the weightlessness environment that we can have for long duration 
which is required for the for the space world training. We can also go on parabolic flights to be exposed to real uh, weightlessness, but this is only for uh, 23 seconds, and uh, this is not good enough for for training. So that's the reason why we merge astronauts. And my role is uh, I'm the the head of the operation for the facility, but I'm uh, mainly the EVA instructors for the astronaut uh, at ESA. Okay, and I heard in some, we, uh, we dropped into your uh, lecture earlier on and I heard something very interesting about one of the sort of main reasons why you built the facility here uh, in, with the uh, ESA astronauts not getting a fair cr- crack at the whip uh, compared to their NASA counterparts. Can you uh, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, um, that's right. In the early years 2000, um, the space agencies were in this uh, very heavy phase of the, the development and the building of the space station. And uh, this phase uh, required a lot of EVAs. And that's the reason why NASA was uh, fully booked with all these preparations and, 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 and EVA training which run uh, their facilities, a neutral uh, buoyancy laboratory, which is equivalent to the one that we have here, but uh, which is uh, uh, much bigger, uh, was booked with two shifts per day uh, with, a, with, a, with a heavy uh, dynamic workload to train everybody. So when uh, we had our ESA astronauts based at EAC in Cologne, uh, when they had to be exposed to uh, the spacewalk training in Houston, directly into the suit, Unfortunately, they could not get the same numbers of runs than, than the, the NASA astronauts. And uh, typically, the first part starts with four runs, uh, and they got only three, uh, because the facility was so booked that there was no other options. But what we have to take into account is that the astronauts are evaluated by the NASA instructors uh, through their uh, EVA training with 15 different skills and, diff- and marks between one and five, and only the astronauts who get the excellent marks are the ones that will be assigned to EVA. The other one, they will do robotics, they will do science, they will do uh, being a Soyuz uh, engineer or whatever, but they will not be assigned to go outside. So you can imagine when our astronauts were going there, uh, getting three runs, and, uh, where the, and were evaluated way compared to the NASA astronauts who were getting four runs, our guys were immediately missing 25% of their suit experience. And, of course, the, this was reflected in the evaluation. And then it was quite difficult to catch, uh, to catch back and to catch over, and, and, and uh, which led to the unfortunate situation that when it was time for their assignment to a mission and when ESA was negotiating with NASA the program of the the activity on board and say, okay, we would like our ESA astronaut to perform an EVA. The reply from NASA was, yes, but uh, look, uh, he will fly with, or she will fly with two uh, experienced NASA astronauts who are extremely qualified in EVA. These are the two guys that we will send outside. And of course, this is the NASA astronaut wanted to go outside. So that was a good rationale for it. So it was a bit like... Um, the, the starting point of why we got interested in it and say, what can we do here, even if ESA has not any, developed any spacesuit yet, uh, what could we do with this facility to uh, prepare astronauts to be better? And this is what we have done, because we put them in a configuration which is close to 
to the suit. I mean, they, we have gloves and, and overlayers uh, to limit their dexterity. We limit their field of view. They carry the same tools that uh, they will be operating at NASA. We put them in the same situation. Uh, and we learn them, we make them acquiring the skills to develop uh, an extra awareness of the environment, which is required when you are uh, on, on spacewalk, despite the fact that all the senses are narrowed down, field of view lim uh, limited, uh, dexterity uh, is, is uh, degraded. When you close your hand, it's like pressing a tennis ball each time, um, movement limitation, and so on. So... What happens through this step-by-step uh, -step program that we have developed and we implement here, that we put the new astronauts through that, the one that were selected in 2009, and uh, when they arrive at NASA, they were ahead uh, compared to the NASA astronauts, who started immediately in the suit and they had to discover everything and to struggle with all these problems. On our side, the guys were like, uh, they had to adapt to the bulkiness of the suit and the movement limitation that we could not reproduce here, but they knew what to do what not to do, what are the mistakes to avoid, how to be efficient and safe during an EVA, and to make sure that you don't do any mistake and you, 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 you go further in a, in a very uh, um, powerful way. So what, what, what happened uh, is that after the first runs, the NASA instructors were looking at them like, wow, these guys are quite talented in EVA. They, they have already uh, quite a good knowledge and developed skills for that. So this was, and they, 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 they got good marks and good evaluation. So beside that, there is a psychological effect that uh, when you, everybody has been exposed to that, when you want to do something, you have an objective and you, this is very challenging. You push forward, but you don't uh, succeed as you expect. You are not happy with your performance. People are criticizing you. You don't get good, good marks. This is a bit discouraging. On the other side, when the case of our guys, when you want to do that, and this is piece of cake, this is easy, you, you are ahead of time, you can do extra tasks, you get good, good evaluation, good, good, um, good marks. Well, it's like you are pushed and, and to, go, to go further. And of course, you have to be motivated, but all the astronauts are motivated to perform an EVA because this is the ultimate experience that you can have in space uh, before we go back to the moon. Huh? Absolutely. <clears throat> well, you mentioned some challenges during your talk earlier. Yeah. When you've been involved in an, a live EVA, when is the time you've been most nervous? Well, the most nervous time for me when was I was uh, watching the second EVA of Luca Parmitano and it was actually close to drawn into the spacesuit. Mm. <clears throat> this was terrifying because uh, it was clear that something was going wrong and it was like, um, I mean, this has never happened in the past. Mm. So it's like you are in the... In the Twilight zone. I mean, uh, something is going completely south. You don't understand what's going on, and and it was clear that there was there was a, an urgency, and, and of course on the the because it was so surprising by every, for everybody that uh, it took some times to come to a decision to um, to stop the EVA, and then the the critical situation of Luca was not fully fully understood uh, by everybody. But, uh, so when they, they, decided, they realized that the water was coming close to his uh, ears and his eyes and his nose, and uh, Luca was not able to, to talk anymore. I mean, he was talking, we could not hear him, he could not hear us, or he, he had the ground control. Uh, he had some water in, in the eyes, but this water has been in contact with, uh, with the desiccant that we put inside uh, the suit to avoid the uh, 
uh, to have some some fogginess inside, and then the the so it's it's irritant on the eyes, <clears throat> and then uh, the decision was like okay your pa- the partner of Luca had to clean out the EVA to bring back all the tools and equipment, while Luca had to go back on, alone uh, to the airlock, and it was sunset. And then the light from his from his helmet <clears throat> was completely blur- blurring uh, his vision with all this water around. He could not see anything. Could not talk. He could nobody could understand uh, in which situation he was, and he was completely uh, isolated and almost blind. So by chance, I mean he's he's a, he's a very strong guy and uh, he knows how to take over. Uh, he was. He has done what what all astronauts should do and and are used to 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 do. It's in in a, in a critical situation like that to think ahead for a solution, not to be completely overwhelmed by the problem and the danger, but say, oh, how can I get out of that with a kind of uh, looking at it from a different level. And he was already thinking ahead that maybe there there is a valve close to the helmet that you could uh, uh, he could uh, open this purge valve to uh, purge part of the air outside or the oxygen outside, which would have sucked the water out. Of course, knowing that after a while, as soon as the water is outside, this will become ice and this will clog the, 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 the valve, but this could have been an option. And then he was thinking like, okay, I have my safety line. I mentioned to you before the, this, this uh, kind of safety line where you are attached to. Yeah. And he said, okay, it's like uh, I'm blind, but let's follow that. Let's follow this cable. It will bring me back to the airlock, hmm. but uh, this it was scary. And for me, I was I was very aware of the situation. And uh, where like, where were you watching that particular situation? From the Eurocom control room. I mean, we have a control room here. This is where we we talk uh, to the to the crew uh, when we support operation for Columbus. So this is like a European Capcom is sitting there. So we had uh, all the the voice communications in real time and also the, the the video. But in such an activity, because we are not the one driving the EVA, we are just uh, spectators. I mean, we, yeah. we, we we watch, but we cannot intervene. Sure. And have you met up with him since? Yeah, we had we had a lot of discussion on that, and uh, I even wrote a, a kind of report to Isa after what, what happened and and. Uh, uh, so it's uh, it was very very difficult time and, and it's it's terrible because when you are in such a situation because it's not only a colleague it's a friend that is up there and when you see that the guy is put in a situation that has never been uh, experienced before and that you who can, could imagine that you can drone in a, in a spacesuit uh, this is this is crazy yeah. I guess every time something horrible happens. You- you learn from it and yes, you try to say, exactly. how can we stop that from ever happening? Exactly. So, I mean, this is uh, something that we are all used to do. And NASA is also, of course, very careful with that. So now uh, they have uh, different procedures to cope with this. And one, uh, one example is that they have in, a, on, in the helmet, you wear now a kind of uh, spongious uh, uh, layer in, in the back of your head. Uh, and you are asked to push back from time to time, your head back and to, to feel the resistance and the, and, the, and the pressure. And of course, if there is water in your helmet, this will be swallowed by this spongious uh, uh, tissue and you will have a different feeling and you can immediately identify that. And it happened later on for the EV of a team that there was a similar yeah. leak and so on and it was mastered very well. They identified the problem and said, okay, we, we, 
we terminate now DVA and guys who you go back. Anyway, they have done all the job that they need to do at that time. Presumably, you were one of the trainers of these, uh, uh, and so therefore you <laughs> felt responsible for it. it must have been a terrifying experience. Well, not responsible, but no. we, 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 I, I was exactly, it was very easy for me to put myself in his shoes. Yeah. Because I've been trained in the spacesuit. I know what it takes. I know uh, all challenging difficulties. I mean, it's 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 fantastic experiment, but this is painful. This yeah. is tiring. This is you are confined in a in a very small environment for for many hours. So, mm. it's something that is not really comfortable at the beginning, uh, but then that you have to to master and to and to develop uh, your level of comfort inside. So I know when you. What what he was experiencing, and being a diver, I mean a diving instructor, and we, we do some diving activities here uh, also in the in the pool with astronauts. I mean, uh, you know what it what it happens when your your face is exposed to full water and uh, you have problem to breathe, to to watch, and so on. So it, it was clear. I was fully understanding what he was going through, and this was scary. When the astronauts first start training, what are the common rookie mistakes that, that they make that they soon get over? Is there a kind of common theme? Yeah, the, the common thing at the beginning, but this is normal for everybody, is, is that you, you get all these recommendations. This is what you have to be careful with. Uh, don't lose any object. Uh, everything that you carry with you should be tethered to you or to, to the structure. Uh, be, make sure that you always double tethers. Be aware of your environment and so on. And then it's like, yeah, yeah of course, because these are basic rules. I mean, uh, but once you are put in the situation where you realize that your visibility is limited, your movement dexterity is limited, you don't see your tools all the time, you don't see your tether, you, you, you can be disoriented, you don't... So you get into the traps and you struggle. If you, you are too fast in translation, at any point of time, the, you, will get, you will be in trouble. Your tethers will be entangled. If you are not careful with the... the the safety line, which is the reel that you carry with you and attach you uh, like a fish line uh, up to the to the airlock, if you don't keep an eye on this, this will be your this is your best uh, friend because this is saving your life. But this can be also your best enemy because this cable can go everywhere, mm-hmm. and if it's stuck behind you, or behind your head, or behind your back, no way that you can remove it. So you have to to call your your colleagues to help you. But you have to avoid this kind of mistakes and. When when you have not experienced it, you get into the trap, and at some point of time, because it's getting tiring, you get, are getting frustrated. Uh, things are not going like you want. You lose a bit uh, the focusness and the, the awareness on, on the things, and suddenly, oh my God, you are trapped, and you come back, and your five or six tethers that you have around they are completely uh, snagged, and and you spend five ten minutes just to remove this snag. Where if you would have been careful enough, yeah. uh, this would not happen. Are, we, are you monitoring there things like heart rate and or, and those kind of? No, problems? not not from our side um, because they are not in the suit. Uh, what we monitor is, is of course because we have voice communication uh, with them uh, underwater. Uh, we monitor the breathing or see the breathing rate, and it's really easy to identify when an astronaut is getting stressed and when an astronaut is getting under under pressure. Mm. And typically, when you when you you are struggling at the beginning in such situation, the natural tendency is to reduce the communication because you consider that you are the best person at the best place, that the others, people, ground control, representing the ground control, they don't know in which struggling situation you are. 
And if you have to explain and to discuss, uh, this is taking time that you would not that you want to concentrate on the task. Sure. But this is actually the opposite, and this is what we tell them. I mean, if you are in, in, a, in a difficult situation, increase your communication because this is where the guys outside can help you, mm. can come with brand new ideas, can come with support, can come with recommendations. Uh, so this has all these kind of things that you have to learn through the process, and these are typical mistakes at the beginning. But then, uh, of course, you. You don't. Once you make them once, you don't make them twice. So, so the people at uh, the control centres on the ground, presumably, they have to go through an enormous amount of training as well because they're issuing. Yeah. So um, normally, all uh, spacewalk is followed by one guy that we call the IV. For, normally, for intravehicular uh, astronauts, uh, there are two options. Either this guy is inside the space station. Uh, or this guy can be uh, on the ground, uh, in the ground control, uh, and communicating with the astronauts. For, for example, for the last, uh, for the for the spacewalk of uh, Thomas Pesquet, uh, Luca Parmitano was in the ground control and was playing this coordination role. Mm. So, what we put there is always an astronaut who knows uh, very well the situation, who has been trained with the guys, who know the procedure by heart, uh, and sometimes who has already done it. Or done a similar activity in the past, so yeah, um, no yeah, because because everything is done according to procedures, and you can have a, a, a procedure, an EVA procedure might have uh, 200, 300 steps that you have to be followed by different. Also, uh, for the first astronaut and for the second, sometimes they work together. Sometimes they work on both a different uh, side of the space station independently, and. Uh, of course, they know exactly what to do. They know they have know almost by heart the choreography and, and the activities, but they don't have the procedure in front of them. Mm. And when you get tired and when you after a bunch of hours, uh, it's easy to say, okay, to to request what, what is the next step? Well, what shall I do now? Mm. So, and this is the role of this IV representative who is always guiding them to tell them, okay, now. For you, the next step is to do that. For you, now you have to do this. Now you have to do these uh, uh, screen operations and uh, you have to, to, to operate some bolts and these are the settings that you have to put on your, on your, on, on your tool. So, um, and that requires from, from this guy to be fully trained, fully aware of what's going on and, and to follow clearly uh, what is happening. Because you ju- just get the feedback from the helmet camera of the astronauts or from what they say, uh, so you, or cameras that are around outside, and you don't. Uh, it also limited the awareness of on the ground side. So, uh, and when they are working in parallel, do, doing different things, it's quite uh, challenging to take care of one, keeping an eye on the second, and 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 to go uh, and to think ahead when when you realize that they might go in on a path that would lead them to trouble. I can imagine. Now, you gave us a fantastic tour of the buoyancy pool earlier. Yeah. How deep is the pool? It's 10 meters. 10 meters yeah. deep. Yeah. And what's the biggest challenge of running a pool like that? Safety, because uh, this is the, we are a training center for astronauts, but this is the only place where you can be injured uh, badly or you can even die. Uh, if you do payload training or Columbus system training on the other side, what can happen? I mean, you, you, you drop a laptop on your foot, ah, okay, bad, bad luck, yeah. but your life is not put into danger. As soon as you are emerged, uh, and even in 10 meters, you, you, you can die. 
Uh, if you are attached to somewhere, if you are suddenly out of air, if you are uh, getting trouble, you can drown in 10 meters. Uh, so uh, our, our be- biggest challenge is to make sure that this will never happen. We don't want any of our guys, uh, divers or whatever, to be injured, and we don't... Uh, injuring an astronaut is, is not an option. Do the divers have to equalize like you would if you were... Not really, because it's only 10 meters, so uh, 10 meters you can stay uh, a bunch of hours, bends. you, you can get the bends, but you can get the bends if you do multiple ascents, yeah. uh, or uh, especially if you go too fast. Or, so we have a set of rules that are like uh, um, additional barrier protections for safety that are just matching the one that NASA has developed in the NBL. Uh, so we have a full recognition of, of the operations uh, on both sides. And, and this set of rules are for a commercial diver, or I mean a, a recreational diver, it's like people would say, these guys are crazy. And they are, they are too precautionous. Mm. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, uh, the, we, re, we reduce the ascent rate. The normal ascent rate that you have in recursal driving, we require an ascent rate, mm. which is much uh, lower than that. Uh, when our guys, the, after uh, dive, they do systematically uh, uh, three minutes uh, safety stop at five meters. Then when they arrive at the platform, they are under observation for 10 minutes without getting out, out, of, the plat- out of the water. Then they have to, co- to stay in the premises for one hour and to report to the dive supervisor after one hour. And all this is done, uh, all these precautions uh, are done to, to avoid any, any problem accident. And this also requires that for each position, for the divers, safety diver, camera diver, utility diver, crane operator, dive sup, dive supervisor, that these guys are trained according to a specific training and they are recertified and requalified and regularly, when we do an operation, we look at it like, okay, do we have any safety issue with that? And how can we improve it uh, to, to, to make it even better next time? So, and thanks to this, since we have uh, started to operate this uh, according to these rules, we have not got any uh, diving incident here. All right. Good to hear. A, a completely different tack. Are you involved in the design or fitting of spacesuits themselves, the the uh, not really, because um, we today we have, let's say, uh, for the timing, we have not initiated in ESA uh, any study to develop a further spacesuit. I mean, uh, the time might come to think about spacesuit for the moon or exploration, the surface exploration, moon and Mars. Maybe already ESA independently or in cooperation with, with our partners. Of course, as soon as people are dealing with that, we are involved. I mean, uh, the only involvement that we have so far is that we are currently uh, stepping into the moon exploration preparation, where we use our facility as an analog for the, the moon environment, because the same way we can simulate weightlessness, we can also simulate lunar gravity by adjusting precisely the buoyancy uh, of the subject compared to his weight so that you have a kind of uh, uh, neg- slightly negative buoyancy which is like being on the moon. Mm. And if you do that with the, the, the astronauts and, and with the, the tools, uh, then we, you, you, you are close to the moon environment. And what we do, we are using a kind of exoskeleton which is limiting the, the this is wet inside 
uh, we are in a, in a kind of scuba or uh, surface supply diving system equipment. And, uh, but this, this exoskeleton is reproducing the movement limitations and, and constraint of the spacesuit. Uh, and with that, we test tools, equipment, to collect samples on the moon, to deploy payloads, uh, and to get smarter, so to make sure that the, the, the tools that we developed and that we, we improve from one step to the other is taking into account the constraint of the spacesuit. And the concern of the spacesuit that we know because we have been in the suit and we know, we know what are, what are the, the limitations. We saw some of the tools earlier that are used. What's the biggest piece of technology you think that's the most helpful for EVAs? Reliab- reliability. Hmm. This is key. And, and uh, also um, having the, the, the capability that the, to, be, to have multiple protection. I mean, I show you the, the standard uh, hook for, 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 for a tether, uh, you have seen that there are three different actions to do to open it. Just because we, don't, we want this to be reliable, we don't want this hook to open by mistake. So if you have only one device to press on to open it, you are sure at a certain point of time this will be left open. With the approach that uh, NASA has developed, uh, you have three actions to do to open the hook and three actions to fully close it. And I like that stuff doesn't have to be too complicated. Like yes. with the hook, you were just saying it's a wire in a bag. Yeah. You press it to be closed yeah. and it hooks on So, as always, the simpler uh, solution is always the best. And uh, we, we don't... This is not always about rocket science. I mean, we have, we have to, to use the, the, the knowledge and, and the, pra- the, the skill that we, we have accumulated and, 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 and that we master now uh, and also to take into account the requirements from, from the other people that would be involved in future missions, for example, for, for moon, for the moon exploration. If we go back to the moon, that's sure that we will do some geological sampling. So geological sampling means that it would be completely uh, uh, irrelevant or not really smart to develop sampling tools which are not fitting the requirement that uh, comes from, from the geologist. So we have to be trained in geology. We have to get uh, in touch with, with the scientists uh, to know what kind of precaution they use on Earth and when they want to do some, some geology sampling. So say, oh, yeah, then our tool should, should do that. Uh, our equipment should do that. And then we take into account the constraint of the suit, and then we take into account uh, uh, so and what we, we have learned in, from, from the environment we have been exposed to, and the example of the bag that you have mentioned, I mean, this is coming from that. It's, it's a geological sample bag used by, by geologists, and we used uh, uh, a system that is already operated on the, on the, uh, on, on, by the astronaut in space to incorporate it in science. And now this, this has a double capability. We can easily, with the EVA gloves, open it and close it, and we can also we have, we have something to attach it and to carry it with us. I think, I think this will be our last question because we don't want to, yeah. we know you're a very busy man. Um, the, the astronaut, the, the EVA seems to be very, very grueling uh, activities. Uh, do, do the astronauts actually sustain any injuries from, yes. from the actual spacesuits themselves? Uh, not really from, uh, from the EVA in space, but from the EVA training, because you do recurrent training regularly in the suit, you are exposed six hours uh, in a row inside. And, uh, and it's, the injuries are mainly due to the fact that when you train in the, sp- in the suit underwater, your suit might, is neutral buoyant. So it's floating like you would be in, uh, on, in a spacewalk. 
but you are not a natural buoyant in the suit. The suit is you, inside, you have your own weight. Mm. So when you are in the vertical position, you stand in the suit. When you are upside down, your shoulders are, are getting all the weight uh, and, and, and sustaining it. And of course, you might have some shoulder injuries, mm. which would not, not happen in space, because in space, whatever your position you are, you don't get it with this friction contact and you don't have this, this uh, uh, weight to, to, to cope with. So during the training, if you are training inverted, uh, and then uh, it's quite common that the astronauts have some bruises on the shoulders, on the arms. Uh, the, the fingers, for example, uh, the, there is no, not, not air circulation down to the fingers. So because I told you it's like pressing a tennis ball, after six hours and even less than that, you are sweating like hell. And your, your uh, fingers and your nails are completely humid. And you have astronauts who develop, uh, who have delamination of nails uh, during the training. You can develop numbness somewhere. I mean, uh, if you, you press too much some, sometimes, suddenly, uh, yeah, you have a, a nerve that is squeezed. Mm -hmm. And then for the next uh, couple of days or even one week, you don't feel anymore uh, one part of your hand. Mm -hmm. So these are things that can happen. Uh, of course, the objective is not to injure the astronaut. Uh, so if, if something is developing like that, yeah, there is a pause in their training. And we make sure, okay, next time we add some additional padding on the shoulders or uh, we do some, we provide additional protections. Sure. But this is, this, you can be injured during the training. Am I right in saying you're the only non-astronaut who's trained in all the different suits? Is that, is that right? Uh, yes, in Europe, yeah. Yeah, in Europe. Because I've been trained in the, in the uh, EMU, the NASA spacesuit. Uh, I will be trained again this year. I go back to Houston for training. And I was also trained in the Orland spacesuit in Russia. Yeah. Uh, that's quite unique in Europe. Normally, you need to be an astronaut for that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been the most uh, amazing, amazing interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, We've learned a lot today. So uh, thanks very much. Yeah. You're very welcome. Cheers. So when when do you come to be trained in the pool? Oh, oh God, I'll, we would love it. That, that would be would yeah, that would be a dream come true. Yeah, I did my paddy <laughs> course in Australia in 2000, oh. and I love diving. But that pool yeah. just looks incredible. No. I want to explore. So how brilliant is Hervé incredible stuff lovely to listen to to that back because it was great at the time yes really 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 interesting so many things um space fact Jamie here we go go on then all seven solar system planets not including Pluto because it's not a planet anymore fit between the earth and the moon whoa that's ridiculous. <laughs> so every single planet but <laughs> I'm just going to quickly qualify this because it doesn't work at perigee okay yeah, so if you combine the planet's diameters, you get roughly 236,000 miles. Okay. But the distance between Earth and Moon at perigee is only 225,000 miles. Yeah. So, and if you take away, actually, the diameter of the Moon and the Earth, which is another 5,000, it's actually only 220,000 miles between the surface of Earth and the surface of the Moon. So you can't, Ridiculous. So you can't fit them in at perigee, but at apogee... It's now 252,000 miles. So take away that 5,000, it's 248. So 236,000 miles of planets does actually fit when the, when the moon is at apogee, which is because the moon's orbit is elliptical, it kind of goes a little bit further out. So it just, ah. about, nah, just about fits in. So, uh, yeah. Nice. And, it, and it just about fits in at the average distance. So it'd be quite funny if you put all the planets in between Earth and the Moon, as the Moon orbited the Earth, it would actually start crashing into them. 
<laughs> yeah, that would be messy. So, yeah, it would be very, very messy. So just how tiny Mercury is, you can fit Mercury 78 times in between 78. Earth and the Moon. But Jupiter only t- twice. So you couldn't actually get more than two Jupiters between Earth it's and the Moon. Old, so, big old planet, that. It is, but how far away is the Moon? You just get all the planets, all seven solar system planets between Earth and the Moon. Yeah, it's a lot. That is a lot. It's a lot, isn't it? Anyway, Jamie, I know, I know you're in a rush, and this has been a I'm bumper. I'm in a little bit of a rush. We're Sorry, everyone. Uh, it's been a bumper episode as you, normal. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us, everyone. And uh, don't forget to go on to iTunes and do a little bit of beautiful subscribing and if you leave us a review let us know on our website what your address is and uh, i might send you a uh, beautiful interplanetary podcast mug for leaving the greatest review of the month that is exciting enough all right guys we'll we'll see you next week see you next week Bye-bye. bye bye